0: It's a very great pleasure uh, to introduce Professor Emily Wilson this year as this year's Steiner lecturer. This lecture series has been made possible through a gift from the Steiner family in memory of Andrew Steiner, an alumnus of the college from the class of 1963. He was a good student all across the program, and he was noted for his loyalty and the generosity he showed to his friends and to the college. It was in keeping with this that this lecture series was established to bring notable speakers to our campus from a variety of disciplines and endeavors in recognition... Okay. To bring notable speakers to our campus from a variety of disciplines and endeavors in recognition of Andrew's intellectual versatility and for the sake of our continued learning. And we're very pleased to welcome tonight members of the Steiner family. Professor Wilson is, of course, well-known for her recent translation of The Odyssey. It's noted for its rapid, direct language and moments of striking lyricism. It's noted, too, for preserving Homeric lineation within a natural English iambic pentameter. She's a professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She studied classics at Balliol College, Oxford, English literature at Corpus Christi, and she earned her doctorate in classics and comparative literature at Yale. She's written on poetry, drama, and philosophy, both from antiquity and to modernity. A book about the death of Socrates, and the many ways that that death has been viewed through the ages, asks, among other things, whether as a teacher and as a thinker we can take him as a model, a question, of course, with which we're all familiar. And she's published translations of many kinds on Seneca's tragedies, and she's currently translating Oedipus Ternus. Please join me in welcoming Professor Emily Wilson.
1: much for being here. It's my first time visiting St. John's. It's a great honor to be here and to get to learn a little bit about your curriculum, which seems so fascinating. And thank you for that very kind introduction. So today I'm going to talk about my approach to producing yet another translation of the Odyssey when it had already been translated into English so many times already. Why do I think the world might need yet another translation? So I'm going to talk about that. But before I get to talking more about the Odyssey and my approach to dealing with it, I thought I should talk about the end of the story, because, of course, um, the reception of my translation has had a lot to do with um, with the headline that I'm the first woman to publish a translation of this poem into English. Of course, there have, in fact, been translations of the Odyssey into other modern languages published by women, Um, For the last few centuries, there was one done into French prose by a woman 400 years ago. There were multiple translations of the Odyssey by women into French, Italian, Turkish, Dutch, probably lots of other languages I didn't know about. Um, But I'm the first woman to publish one in English, and that's been, in some cases, the only thing that's said about the translation in the media. Um, (laughs) So I just want to show you the the, the headlines, all of which, um, for for a while, seem to have the word woman in the headline. Woman. Woman, woman, women, woman, woman, woman. Could the Odyssey have been the work of a woman? No, it couldn't. Sadly, it couldn't. I mean, I think it would be a lovely idea if one weren't going in the crazy direction of thinking only women can write about women, which Samuel Butler um, uses as the reason why he thought it was by a woman. I don't think it was by a woman because I don't think we have any historical evidence for thinking that women were aiodoi or poets in this period. Um, but so I, I think this this coverage um, is worth talking about i was wor- I was grateful um, in some ways for headlines which didn 't have the word, word "woman" in the title. I think in some ways it 's a good thing if um, if the media coverage of this translation might be doing something to inspire young women in the field of classics in the fields of poetry in the field of translation, and it also to encourage people to realize that, in fact, social identities matter. It's not like the words you say are going to be identical no matter what your life experience is, no matter what your social identity is. Um, Categories like gender, race, um, socioeconomic class, being abled or not being abled, those categories actually do make a difference to what kinds of interpretation you might be giving, either as a journalist, a historian, a translator, or whatever it might be. So I think it's good if we're starting to recognize that. Um, on the other hand I think there are issues with the whole idea that um, there's such a thing as the women writers, women's translations and then there's the normal translations by the normal people Um, so I think I just wanted to emphasize I guess three things which I think haven't been emphasized enough by the kinds of fluffier um, press coverage (laughs) (laughs) they're good right (laughs) so three serious points First point is that my being the first woman to publish a translation of the Odyssey in English is not really a story about me. It's a story about the huge problem in the field of greco roman um, translations. Um, and it's a problem which has been for decades there in the English, uh, in the English-speaking world, but totally ignored, which is that the vast majority of modern English translations of all classical texts, not just Homer, are by cisgendered, heterosexual, upper-middle-class, very old white men, which is actually quite a small demographic, even if you think about the whole demographic of people who have advanced knowledge of ancient Greek and, ancient Latin, and, and Latin. Women and racial minorities and younger scholars have been barely represented among the field of translators in recent decades, despite the fact that there are lots of people with PhDs in classical literature and in classical languages who are not in that that teeny tiny demographic category. So I think there are several different structural reasons why that might be the case. I think one issue is to do with the um, radical undervaluing of translation as an activity in the academy along with other forms of writing which aren't the standard peer reviewed monograph. Um, It doesn't get you tenure, it doesn't get you promotion. It's seen as a kind of outreach. It's nice for the general public but it doesn't have any intellectual value which I think is a problematic attitude about translation, and that also means that if you're somebody who might be struggling to get tenure, you're not going to spend five years doing an epic poem that will do nothing for your file. Um, I I think there are a whole lot of other um, structural things going on as well. I think there there are also issues that have to do with how classicists in particular perceive what translation is. If you think translation is a quasi-scientific activity, you scoop the meaning out, plonk it down in a different language, and then your clunky, ugly translation is exactly the same as the original, and it's just like like adding up 2 plus 2 is 4, then anybody could do that exactly the same, and would do that the same, no matter what their identities are. I don't think translation works like that at all, Um, but I think that, that model is still there in classics in a way that it's not necessarily as much in modern languages. So, I, I, I guess one thing I want to emphasize also with this is that I think we should have more, diver- more social diversity about who, who the translators are, regardless of the second point, which is that we should ha- also have more stylistic, literary, aesthetic, interpretive diversity. I think social, identity is, social diversity is a value in itself. And I dream of the day when there'll be just as many terrible, badly written, clunky translations by women out there as there already are by men. And the second point is that that being female, so the last two points are quicker. Second point is that being female doesn't in itself guarantee that you have a distinctively quote unquote female feminine perspective or that you're a feminist. So you can test that by looking at other translations of Homer by women. I've read read bits of um, some of the translations by women in French and Italian, for instance. I don't think I could have guessed which ones were by women and which ones were not by women, because I don't think there's anything that they have in common in in any particular way about their attitudes to gender or about their style. I don't think girls all write in the same way. Um, Caroline Alexander's translation of the Iliad, shout out to her, she, she was the first woman who published a translation of Homer in English. It's totally different from my Odyssey. The fact that we're both women translating Homer doesn't mean that they're the same category at all. In my work, I try to be as conscious and critical about gender as well as other social roles as I can be, but that perspective is not predetermined by my gender identity. It's a chosen, learned perspective, which is informed by the fact that I've read a lot of feminist scholarship, including feminist scholarship on Homer. The final point is that men have gender identities as well, and it's a big problem that they're never asked about that. I've been asked a gazillion trillion times by interviewers to talk about my supposed affinity with all the female characters in the Odyssey. The interviewers always say, so you must have a unique feminine perspective. Can you tell us about Penelope yet again? And I've read some interviews with um, Robert Fitzgerald, Stanley Lombardo, um, Robert Fagels. They were never, ever asked... You must have a unique male perspective. You must like all the male characters. Can you tell us about how you feel so deeply for male characters and your, what your masculine perspective brings to the poem? And I actually think they should have been asked those questions because there would be answers that could potentially be given to those questions. I think we should stop asking women, why are you a woman? And start asking men, what is it? what difference does it make that you're a man? Okay, so that's all preamble. And now I'm going to get to talking about my project, which... Ha- From my perspective, the decision to take on this project had nothing to do with gender at the start. Pete Simon was was an editor at Norton with whom I worked on the Norton anthologies of world literature and western literature. He approached me to ask whether I would consider doing a new translation of the Odyssey. And I was excited to be asked because I've always loved this poem. I read it as a beautiful, infinitely rich narrative about questions I think about all the time in both my scholarly and intellectual life and in my daily personal life too, about time, identity, whether we can be the same person after 20 years or in a new place or with new people, about home, hiding, rage, grief, growing up, imagination, recognition. It's a poem which turns to details of everyday life, physical things like food, clothes, moving through space, beds, tables, boats, trees, weapons, into these richly resonant symbols that define human and divine relationships. It's both very practical, very physical, and very magical. But loving the Odyssey and wanting to keep on rereading it in Greek is a totally different thing from thinking it's worthwhile to spend five years of my life trying to produce yet another translation when, as I'm hinting with these lists, there are were, there were lots and lots and lots out there and it's not like the flood of Odyssey translations has slowed down. In fact, there have been at least two in English since my translation came out. However much I love rereading Homer, it would not be worth the time to produce a fully realized poetic translation if I was just going to replicate what was already out there. Um, so, I, before I signed the contract, I spent some time looking at some of the other ones and some of the ones that people most commonly read in college and after doing that, I realized I did think I could do something that was authentically engaged with the original that was different, both in its formal literary qualities and also in what kinds of interpretive perspectives it was going to be bringing to the poem. Um, as you all know, because of course you've all read the Odyssey, you all know this is a poem about hospitality, about Xenia, um, and I wanted to use this as an opportunity to offer a different kind of Xenia to Homer, this immigrant from a very, very distant, faraway place into our culture. You may have picked up that I'm also an immigrant and I'm conscious that um, people have different stereotypes and preconceptions about different kinds of people from different nationalities. If you're Korean, you have to be hard working. If you're Latina, you have to love dancing. If you're British like me, you're supposed to know what the difference between a dame and a baronet is or whether the royal family have had yet another baby. And I don't know and I don't care. So uh, my point about that is just that I wanted to, I felt that there was a tendency to, because Homer is ancient, therefore Homer always has to talk in the stupid ancient voice or has to always have the, because Homer is epic, Homer always has to be, have, have that, that particular foreign accent of booming, pompous voice. But but Homer's Homer's version of what is epic poetry isn't actually a a kind of epic that's informed by Milton and Pope. So I wanted to try and find a voice or set of voices for Homer that was more diverse and more fluid, more fluent, and was less um, both archaizing and bombastic than I felt the tendencies were. So my first set of thoughts were to do with form. As you all know, because of course you all you all know everything there is to know about Homer. But the, um, the original is composed in dactylic hexameter. So here's the first line, which again you probably all know. It's dactylic hexameter and it's that way all the way through. Dactyl is a long, short, short, like our fingers, so it's and it's hexameter, so it's six of that. Andra moi pola. And in fact this line has not come out right. Anyway, that's that's just the fault of the slide. Um, So it's it's hexameters all the way through. It has this regular rhythm. So I thought a lot about what kind of poetic form should I use. Um, This is the first line as rendered by the first English translator, the great dramatist George Chapman, who uses pentameter rhyming couplets. And then the Alexander Pope version also uses uh, uses iambic pentameter rhyming couplets. You can see that both Chapman and Pope Render polytropon as if it had something to do with wisdom, which it certainly doesn't. Um, So, one possibility would be to use either hexameters or something, or a long line that if you squint and don't read it out loud, might look as if it was hexameters. And this is a a somewhat popular choice. So, the Latimore version is in the squint if you look, it might look like hexameters kind of thing. The Rodney Merrill version is actually in hexameters. I didn't want to use hexameters because, it, or, or, or even fake hexameters because it seemed to me that the, um, the project of imposing an alien verse form onto English would create a, a kind of inauthenticity which wasn't there in the original. The original is in the, the regular verse form for narrative verse, which is not, for English, hexameters. For archaic Greece, that is what it is. Um, so the more popular choice apart from prose, I'm not giving you prose versions, but there are plenty of prose versions, the more popular choice is to use free verse. So quite a lot of the recent translations or translations from the last 50 years don't have a regular rhythm, so they're not echoing that aspect of the original at all. You can also see from just looking at these um, passages together, this is the beginning in the Fitzgerald translation, the Fagels translation, and the Lombardo translation, Um, that they have other things in common too. You can see how they're actually, there's evidence that they're each looking at each other. We have the wanderer, and then we have the wanderer. We have plundered, then we have plundered. We have time and again, then we have time and again. So I I hadn't actually realized how how similar they are to each other until doing this exercise after publishing my translation. But it made me grateful that I didn't look at other translations while I was doing mine, because I didn't want to have that kind of echoing. I feel like if you're going to, add yet another translation to the huge pile of Homer translations, it shouldn't be already, half of it shouldn't be the same as what we've already got. It should be genuinely different. So I decided I should use iambic pentameter because it's the native anglophone um, meter. And I wanted to use a very regular iambic pentameter because to me it seems that the experience of reading Homer in the original, an essential element of that experience is having this regular um, rhythm, this regular music. And of course, that's also part of the heritage of the fact that this poem is based on a centuries-long oral tradition. So I wanted to write in a way that might invite reading out loud, um, not least by having a regular um, rhythm. I also had a sort of down-low other other motive, which wasn't my primary motive, which was, I thought, if more high schoolers read an Odyssey that was in iambic pentameter, then they wouldn't be so scared once they get to Shakespeare. So my other big formal thing was that I I chose to use the same number of lines as the original. Most translations, not just of the Odyssey, but in general, are longer than the original text. You can see why that would be the case. No one language converts totally seamlessly into another. This one word in ancient Greek could mean a hundred different things in English. So how do I cover my bases? I put down five different words. But then you end up with a translation that's quite a lot longer, I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to force myself not to do that because the rapidity, the pace of Homer seemed to me so important in terms of how the the narrative drive keeps going along. It doesn't keep bogging you down with several synonyms. It keeps going on, and you want to keep on listening because it's going on so fast. In general, I wanted to convey something of what I felt was the essential musicality, clarity, vividness, Emotional, psychological depth, range, multivocality, beauty, and drive that seemed to me essential in my own reading of Homer. I also wanted to try to write as well as I could on the principle that a great poem shouldn't be turned into a horrible one. So so a a big issue that occurs for every every, every translator of Homer is about what to do with repetitions and formulae. As you all know, The Homeric poems, based on an oral tradition, have a lot of formulaic elements and a lot of repeated lines, repeated words, repeated epithets, which are somewhat different from adjectives that we have in a literary culture. Some English translations are more repetitive than mine is, some are less so. Um, It seemed to me that I wanted to keep some definite sense of stable components, things that repeat. Um, I wanted to have a sense that that there are... um, There are some some things that are so magical that you're gonna keep encountering them over and over. There's Wyndark Sea, and then there's more Wyndark Sea, and then there's more Wyndark Sea. There's Horse Lord Nestor, and he's gonna go on being Horse Lord Nestor. But I didn't want to repeat quite as much as the original, and in fact, I did some deliberate changing of things which are repeated in the original, because it felt to me, as I went through multiple different drafts, that when I repeated too much, it started to, the repetitions started to have a different effect in a literary literate text from the effect that I felt they had in this poem, which was composed for a primarily oral culture. In an oral culture, the repetitions suggest these things matter. In a literate culture, if you repeat over and over and over exactly the same way, you can suggest this is a cliche and I haven't thought about it. Please, dear reader, just skip because the writer hasn't thought about it. So, for instance, with rosy-fingered dawn, it's a line that recurs 20 times in the Odyssey exactly the same way. I always kept the same components. There's always a goddess. She's always early or newborn. She always has flowers or blooming or touching, or roses. She always has hands, fingers, touching. But I mixed up the components, which was a really fun thing to do. Um, So, so I've talked so far about formal kinds of things, and then there's the larger issue of style. I aimed for a readable, clear register because I think it really matters to that Homeric syntax is super easy. It's not difficult Greek. It's a poem that's designed to be comprehensible if it's performed out loud. It's not a text that demands slow rereading. I didn't quite get that. I have to go back and reread it three times. It's not like that. The syntax is very, very easy. It's a very connected kind of syntax, and then this, and then that, but that, and so on. It's not a lot of subordination. I wanted to have a readable register. I wanted to avoid foreignisms, archaisms, and high rhetoric to a very, very large extent, to bring out that simplicity, clarity, and speed. On the other hand, I didn't want to be totally modernizing, totally domesticizing, totally colloquial. Even beyond the fact that most people don't speak in iambic um, pentameter all the time, my language has other elements of artifice. I avoid all contractions, like doesn't and don't, to create a register that I hope is reminiscent of real speech, but always in a way that's a little bit weird, a little bit odd. I also had, I, w- I hoped there would be some moments when the reader would think, that was a really weird word choice, or I feel a little bit jarred here. I liked it, I like it when people say, I found this choice of yours kind of jarring. And I always think, yes, cool. go, <laughs> I jarred you. Um, because I, it seemed to me important just to nod to the fact that the Homeric poems are not in a totally neutral or totally homogenous kind of language. They're in a language which nobody ever actually spoke. It's a language which developed over the course of several centuries of oral tradition and emerged over multiple different parts of the Greek-speaking world. So it's lots of different dialects fused together. So if you were gonna go all out for that aspect of Homer, you would have to have some bits of Chaucerian English, some bits of Cockney English, some Glaswegian, some California slang, some Bostonian English. Just mix it all up, and it would be a wonderful Joycean experiment, and it would be really fun for me to write, but I, I, th- I felt that it would be less fun for people that wanted to have an emotional response to the poem. So I couldn't go all the way towards doing that. Um, translation theorists like Antoine Berman and Lawrence Venuti, echoing Schliemacher have argued that translators have an ethical obligation to write in a style they call foreignizing, or what you might call translationese. They argue that foreignizing is the only way to pay due respect to alien cultures, rather than forcing them into the hegemonic anglophone mode. I agree that there's a super problematic blindness in North American and British cultures to questions about translation and to accessing non-anglophone literature and other culture. But I don't think the solution is always to translate all foreign texts into an off-puttingly foreignizing style. It can be the quickest way to ensure nobody ever wants to read any translated literature. I also think there are differences. Um, Lawrence Venuti is a specialist in the modern Italian novel. I think ancient literature has its own special and not, not identical differences from, um, translating, in terms of translation from translating contemporary literature. Because Partly because, as I hinted already, there are particular preconceptions about how the ancients should sound, which are not the same as the preconceptions we have about how should the girl with the dragon tattoo sound. We expect that kind of book to sound as if it was originally written in English. We don't want to be reminded that they were reading a translation. Whereas if it's a classical text, we might want to be reminded, this is very grand and hard to read. And it might be surprising in a different way if it's less hard to read and less grandiose than you expect. Within classics in particular, badly written translations are often tolerated and even highly valued because they replicate the experience of the struggling student in intermediate Greek class. So the pain is supposed to be authenticating. But I personally don't think that's the experience that a translator who's trying to produce a published version should be trying to replicate whatsoever. I think you should replicate the experience of somebody who enjoys reading Homer and is quite good at it. In antiquity, Homer Homer was really imagined to be enjoyable and pleasurable. People listened to Homer for entertainment. It wasn't something that they forced themselves through. Um, So I wanted to produce a language for, for, a poetic language for Homer that would feel like one might actually conceivably read it for pleasure. I think in general we're accustomed to taking for granted a totally debatable binary which we should totally throw out. It's the idea that translations are either quote unquote literal or they're loose. They're either faithful or they're poetic. That binary relies on the totally false idea that there's just one thing the original means. The quote-unquote literal translation is often extremely unfaithful to the form, the style, the emotional effect of the original. Clunkiness is not the same as truth. The real question for any translator isn't whether to tell the truth or tell a pretty lie. It's a much more complex set of issues about which truths to tell, out of the many true facts about the original text, not all of which can ever be conveyed by any version in another language. So one of the most central truths that I wanted to tell about the Odyssey was that it's a complex polyvocal poem. I've seen from, from teaching it that there can be a tendency to think it's not like that at all. It's a superhero story about an unproblematically heroic male Western hero, implicitly white, who is good because he crushes the bad guys and monsters and foreigners and witchy women and understands the value of hospitality, which apparently was important in ancient Greece. You get an A if you say that. The story has a happy ending because the good guy gets back with the objectified wife, regains all his wealth and all his slaves. So it's a nice celebration of family values, consumerism, (laughs) patriarchy, war, superiority of normal male white people over foreigners and girls. And I I wouldn't like the Odyssey if that was all it was. I don't think that's all it is. And I wanted to create a translation that would make it quite hard to think that's all there is. I wanted to create what I hoped would be a truthfully complex recreation of this, what I think is a truly complex text. As you know, it's about two central Greek concepts, both of which I think it grapples with in really interestingly contradictory and nuanced ways. The first concept is nostos, meaning homecoming, You might think coming home is a totally straightforward thing. You just get back where you are. But, of course, the Odyssey is exploring a case where homecoming is as hard as it could possibly be. In doing so, it shows that there are profound questions raised by the concepts of being home, coming home. There are disturbing questions about whether homecoming is essentially exclusive, whether we create a home for ourselves only by keeping other people out, which is what Odysseus does. Everybody else who who he leaves, leaves his home with doesn't come back home, and then he comes back home and kills the people who are in his home, and then he has a lovely home. <laughs> the second Greek term that's central is the one I already referred to, xenia, which means the ideal relationship between strangers, hosts, and guests. In, the, in this code, people have a deep obligation to take care of strangers in need, and giving and receiving hospitality can, can help families form lasting relationships down through many generations and across ba- great boundaries of space. So it's a, it's a networking tool for a male elite. It's in many ways an inspiring ideal, especially in these times of xenophobia, not xenophilia. But the poem also shows us how exclusive the code is. It doesn't apply to women who are not supposed to travel. Think about the fact that the one woman who does travel, Helen of Troy, doesn't go well. It also shows us how easily Xenia can go wrong, as when the suitors act like bad guests invading Odysseus's house without asking. And Odysseus responds by being the worst kind of host, the kind who murders the guests (laughs) and ensures they never have a journey home. So the, the original poem to me is compelling because of the nuance and complexity of its presentation of its core values and also how deeply it lets us into the perspectives of so many different characters. This diversity of perspectives and this emotional and ethical depth I felt was obscured or erased by some of the English translations that I looked at, the contemporary ones in the service of creating a more straightforwardly heroic in a modern sense narrative. One concrete example is that I used the word slave for words that are commonly rendered, even by translators that, are, that publish their translations after mine, with words like servant or maid or housekeepers. Um, I think there's a systematic blindness at stake in doing that because in the original there's no ambiguity is it a servant or is it a slave. If the person tells a story about being trafficked into slavery it's, there's no ambiguity about what kind of status this person has. Um, but I think there's a desire to idealize the society of Homer. It's a great poem and therefore it must be about a great man and therefore he can't be a slave owner. So you try and try as hard as you can to make it just about the great man's greatness and not show how complex it's, it's um, narrative of that story is. So, um, in the original, uh, you've seen the, la- the first two lines of the original, the word polytropos, um is used in later Greek um, for situations as well as people. In searching for a word to translate polytropos, I wanted to think of something that would be apl- applicable to the poem itself as well as to its protagonist. That it would have something of the imagery of the original, Um, but with um, a sense of layeredness and a sense of layeredness both in this character and in this narrative because it seems to me programmatic that out of the many epithets of this much epitheted hero, the one that we get at the start is Polytropos as opposed to Polymetis, Polymechanos, um, Polytlas, and so on. Tell me about a complicated man, Muse. Tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy and where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered on the sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed, and for their own mistakes, they died. They ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from home. Now, goddess, child of Zeus, tell the old story for our modern times. Find the beginning. So I wanted in this, in this passage, I'm not going to talk about every single translation choice because I could easily talk about that for five hours, but I just want, I wanted to, just to flag that I, I wanted it to be very clear that there's this complexity about the depiction of Odysseus. He's both a, um, a victim who's lost and he's also somebody who wrecked, the holy, wrecked a holy town. He's both somebody who got home successfully. He's, he's the successful performer of a heroic quest and he's also somebody who whose men all died, who were surrounded by people who failed to get a nostos, a homecoming. But it's it's both showing um, the success of Odysseus and the deaths and failures of everybody around him. Um, In in most other translations that I've looked at, I think there are are attempts to combat this confusing complexity, and to make the poem and its subject seem, I think, more simple than they are. So just to give you a sense of how much translation matters, I thought I should pick just a teeny tiny bit and show you just a few different versions of it. And um, one thing I just want to flag in doing this is that, well, I'll flag a couple of different issues in this teeny tiny passage. The passage I'm choosing is the first two lines of book five, which in some ways is the start of the poem proper. It's the start of Odysseus's journey. The situation on book five, of course, is that he's um, trapped on the island of Calypso, where he's been for the last seven years. She's promised to make him immortal. He could stay with her forever. And yet, for whatever reason, he never gives a reason, he wants to go back home to his less good-looking mortal wife, Penelope. So these first two lines of the book matter because they, they show that there's a, in the sky, mirroring of the situation there on the island of Calypso. There's a goddess, an immortal goddess, with a mortal man, Tithon, who has taken the deal with the goddess, and he's immortal, though he's not ageless. Um, so even though they're just another dawn I think they're an important dawn because there's the whole question of how do you how do you get out of that situation in the case of Odysseus he leaves in the case of dawn she leaves Um, so this is Chapman's version the first in English aurora rose from highborn tithin's bed that men and god gods might be illustrated so a couple of things I want to flag here. One is that in the Greek, you will see that the bed is not specified who it belongs to, but Chapma makes it belong to Tithonus. Also notice that she brings the light to Athanatoisi um, and also to Brotoisin. Brotos is a word which occurs later in Book 5 with the white goddess saying, I used to be a Brotos and now I'm a god. So it's clearly a word which can apply to female people as well as male people but this translation makes makes the illustration happen only to half the human race. Also notice that Chapman's very interested in reading the Odyssey in terms of um, neo-Stoic Christian enlightenment, so he he wants there to be enlightenment happening, or illustration is is in in this period a word that suggests enlightenment as opposed to drawing nice pictures. This is the Pope version. The saffron morn with early blushes spread Now rose refulgent from Tithonus' bed, with newborn day to gladden mortal sight, and gild the courts of heaven with sacred light. So you can see how much he's adding in there. Some wonderful things that he's adding in. He's making dawn seem embarrassed to be getting out of bed with the blushes, which is very creative. You can see how Pope's version is four lines longer, is twice as long as the original. Notice that he does the same thing in making the bed belong to Tithonus. Um, and then also notice how he, he adds in the, the idea that there's sacredness and there's also courts in heaven. None of that is in the original. But it's all kind of great, just creative. This is the prose version by T.E. Lawrence of Arabia fame, and I, which I'm including because I think it has this amazing detail. Dawn rose from her marriage bed beside Highborn Tithonus to bring her daylight to both gods and men. So people who know about um, the life of Lawrence, there were all kinds of terrible rumors about his sex life. So I think it's really interesting that he makes it a marriage bed. He makes <laughs> Dawn as, as bourgeois as possible, just to reassure you. <laughs> um, so this is, this is the um, Butler version, which is also prose. And now as Dawn rose from her couch beside Tithonus, harbinger of light alike to mortals and immortals. So I, I feel, feel like it's kind of comforting that in this version, Dawn gets to own the couch, but then notice that She's only the harbinger of light. She's not actually bringing the light. She's the announce. She's the announcement girl for light that might be brought from somewhere else. This is the Latimer version. Now dawn rose from her bed where she lay by haughty Tithonus, carrying light to the immortal gods and to mortals. Um, so notice the I think kind of pejorative use of the word haughty, for Agaos, which is an epithet which, as far as we know, seems to be very positive. I think it's an interesting sort of correlative to um, Lawrence's attempt to make it seem bourgeois there's an idea that if he's haughty maybe there's something slightly wrong with what's going on in this illicit love affair I don't know I'm not sure quite how to read that this is the Fitzgerald version dawn came up from the bed of her reclining leaving her lord Tithonus brilliant side with fresh light in her arms for gods and men so, notice how he adds in the brilliant side um, and the bed of her reclining. which we, um, we can comment, we could discuss later, but why exactly, what kinds of interpretive ed- things do those additions do? Notice how he makes the light fresh, so it's more like a lovely bouquet for the pretty lady to be ha- carrying the beautiful flowers, and notice how he, she's also bringing it just to the men. This is the Lerb translation, which, of course, is usually touted as the literal one in prose. Now Dawn arose from her couch but from beside Lordly Tithonus to bear light to the immortals and to mortal men. This is the Robert Fagel's version. As Dawn rose up from bed by her lordly mate Tithonus, bringing light to immortal gods and mortal men. So same thing with the the men and same thing with the lordly mate. The archaizing, archaizing I think is interesting. Then we have the Lombardo version. Dawn reluctantly left Tithonus on her rose shadow bed then shook the morning into flakes of fire. So you can see how that's very different from any of the others. For one reason it's different because this is the first one in which we get an indication that Dawn, who's a busy working goddess, doesn't actually want to go to her day job. Um, (laughs) She's reluctant. And we also get these lovely editions of rose-shadowed bed and flakes of fire, which are borrowed from, kind of neatly from Tennyson's Tithonis. So I think we could also discuss when does translation shift over into imitation or into something which isn't quite translation. I think we could have that conversation certainly about the Pope version of these lines and also about the Lombardo version. This is my version. Then dawn rose up from bed with Lord Tithonus to bring the light to deathless gods and mortals. So I I hadn't actually thought about the men issue until I looked at other translations and realized that it it was an issue that I didn't use the word men for Brotos. but what I did think about was the fact that in the original, the two the pairs of, of recipients of light are not parallel linguistically. It's the athanatoisi, and then it's the brotoisi. Those aren't linguistically, uh, like, if you, if you translate it as immortals and mortals, you make them sound closer than they are, which I think really matters, given that the whole setup, as I said, is that there's a real question of, can there ever be an equal relationship between an immortal goddess and a mortal I think the line in itself suggests this is a vast gap. Dawn is primarily aimed at the deathless gods, and then the mortals are tacked on like an afterthought. Okay, so now I'm going to turn to a much more harrowing passage, which is the moment um, after Odysseus has got back to Ithaca, left, left Calypso, got back to Ithaca, and after being in disguise for, with the help of Athena as a homeless old migrant or beggar, He's finally gradually revealed himself to each member of his household um, except for his wife, and he's revealed himself to Telemachus, his son, and then he reveals himself to all the suitors who are besieging Penelope and slaughtered them. Um, And then he delegates the final acts of murder to Telemachus and the slaves and tells Telemachus that he should hack all the life out with swords from the twelve women who have been raped by the suitors, according to Odysseus. Um, And then Telemachus, who up till this point has been kind of a dopey kid who doesn't have much idea of of what he should do and has mostly shown that if he tries to give a public speech, he bursts into tears, he's agonized, he's bullied, he doesn't feel good about himself. At this moment, he has has an idea of his own. He contradicts what Odysseus says should be done with the women. Instead of murdering them with swords, he decides they should be murdered by hanging, because they don't deserve a clean death. So there's clearly a lot of, I think, creepy psychosexual stuff going on about Telemachus not wanting to touch those bodies with his sword. Um, I also think there are really interesting questions going on in the passage about what kinds of perspectives are we allowed access to? Do we only see this horrible scene of murder through the eyes of the murderer? Or do we also get to see something of the way it seems to the victims? And this goes back to what I was saying about trying to bring out that the Odyssey has more than one point of view. I think in this scene, there is more than one point of view on um, what's going on here. So before we turn and look at a few different different choices that matter, I just want to make sure that in this passage, those of you who have studied enough Greek, which I know would be quite a lot of you, notice that in the lines I've underlined, there is no term of abuse. It's saying, um, Telemachus is saying, um, that he wouldn't have them he wouldn't take away their, their life by a clean death, the life of those, ta'on, who spent the night beside the suitors. Ia'on, para, demnes, nest, Right? So there's no term of abuse. Just bear that in mind when we get to some translations which added in. So, first question, interpretatively what is the murderer like? The Greek says that he's pepnumenos, which he always is. That's his standard epithet. It suggests something or other about some cognitive capacity. He's taken some kind of thought. Is it a good thought? If you say thoughtful, you suggest it is a good thought. I don't think pepnumulos necessarily means he's thought about it in a really good way, and therefore what he's about to do will, be, will make rational sense. Um, but that's a possible translation. That's what Latimer goes for. Another possibility is, to, is as Fagels does, to suggest that the, that the epithet gives him some kind of moral authority. He's an executor of justice, he's stern. Which I think would be a weird um, way of rendering numeros just by itself. I think it's about the interpretation of the whole passage. I wanted to choose something which would suggest he's done some kind of thinking, but wouldn't necessarily suggest this was good thinking. Then there's a complex question about, what the, um, about whether the victims are human and also whether Telemachus thinks that they've done something wrong such that they deserve to be punished. Um, the Lattimore calls them these creatures, suggesting that, that killing them is like killing an animal. The Fitzgerald makes, them, makes Telemachus say, I wouldn't give the clean death of a beast to trolls, you sluts. The Fagels goes even further, they're sluts and whores. The Lombardo calls them suit of sluts. The, but the This Year translation by Peter Green, echoing in fact a lot of the classicist scholarship on the passage, has a really long footnote about the really important issue in this passage, which is about, could you do it? How exactly would you do it if you really needed to kill 12 women at once? How would you do that? Um, so I didn't think that we needed to... I mean, it actually, again, didn't occur to me to put in a word like sluts because the Greek doesn't have anything about that. Um, but I also think it matters that these translators are clearly reading the passage as if Telemachus is saying the women did something bad. I don't read the passage that way. I don't think it's a necessary reading. I think Telemachus is saying, they're a source of shame to me. They make me feel terrible because they remind me and they remind my father of the time when this house was not owned by us. They remind us of other men's power and that's a source of shame. That doesn't necessarily mean that there is some label that we should be putting on them. Um, So similarly, there are questions about the inset simile the women are compared to doves or thrushes making their way back to their nests, which, who, and instead of getting, their, getting back home, they encounter a net. Um, so one can translate the simile in such a translate and interpret the simile in a way that suggests that um, it reinforces them, them not being human. They're less like birds, so killing them is like killing a chicken. Or, on the other hand, and this is the way I, I, I read the passage, I think the simile works to provide us access to their point of view. I think it shows us that what they want is the same as what Odysseus wants. They want a nostos. They want to go back home. So I think it matters that the word given for the bird home is aulis, which can be used for human habitation as well as for birds. But, of course, it's not that it's an impossible interpretation to say they're going like little birds to a nest and there's something inhuman about it. Also, just notice how um, Fitzgerald is quoting from um, what Hamlet says to Ophelia in Hamlet with the larks and springes. So he's, he's putting back early modern, an early modern scene of misogyny onto this text. Then there are questions about how, do, how does the reader actually feel? Is the pity something which is something we feel, or is it happening somewhere far away? I think if you use like a word that's archaic and not inviting of pity, like piteous, you suggest... Somebody somewhere, in theory, could, could feel pity, but not me. And then the final thing is that this terrible detail of the feet that keep on moving um, just for a tiny while. Notice how in the Fitzgerald and Fagel's translations, there's a suggestion that they're party girls. This is what happens to party girls. They're, da- they're dancing up, they- their feet are dancing, they're kicked up heels. What do you think is gonna happen if you're a party girl? And then in Lombardo, there's more sense that they're still birds so that, that, of course, it's still okay to be killing them because it's okay to kill birds. So I think that in Book 22, we have this really complex interweaving of different perspectives, not on the various different murders, including the murders of the suitors as well as of the 13 slaves who were killed at the end, that we have the perspective of, of Athena, of Odysseus, Telamchus, and the narrator. None of those are identical with each other, nor are those identical with the perspectives of the murder victims. So I'm just going to read my version. Telemachus then took initiative, insisting, I refuse to grant these girls a clean death <laughs> since they poured down shame on me and mother when they lay beside the suitors. At that, he wound a piece of sailor's rope round the rotunda and round the mighty pillar, stretched up so high no foot could touch the ground. As doves or thrushes spread their wings to fly home to their nests, but someone set a trap. They crashed into a net, a bitter bedtime. Just so the girls, their heads all in a row, were strung up with a noose around their necks to make their death an agony. They gasped, feet twitching for a while, but not for long. Okay, so I know that's kind of a harrowing passage, and I hope that we can, we can process it in some way. I, mean, I, I felt that in a way I should have given trigger warnings, and I apologize for not doing that. Um, so I think in general, translators have to serve multiple different mistresses, and this disturbing passage is one of many instances where there's ethical as well as poetic and philological and scholarly imperatives to be as clear and thoughtful and responsible as we can be, both about our own context and about what the poem might be saying or doing in its historical context. There needs to be um, both a commitment to scholarly and philological historical truth and also to, um, to our own language and our own, to the poetic truths of. The English language and to the audiences within our own time. Um, So I'm going to, because that passage was so harrowing, I thought I should end by reading a happier passage. So the happier passage is going to be the passage when Odysseus and Penelope um, reunite, after Odysseus has had all the blood of the suitors scrubbed off him by a helpful slave, and Athena, who's even more helpful, has given him yet another divine makeover, so he looks really wonderful. And yet she still holds out against him and, until she's given him the test by claiming to have moved their bed, which is the supposedly immo- immovable bed, which he made himself out of the olive tree, the tree of, of, of Athena, which is growing in the middle of the palace. So it's a, it's a classic Odys- Odys- Odysseus kind of trick in that it's an ingenious way of using what's already there. Um, just as he does with the raft with which she gets away from Calypso. And he's horrified and, I think, scared by the idea that she might have moved the bed because, of course, the trick of her saying that is a way of reminding him that he's not omnipotent, that he can't actually necessarily guarantee that um, he can leave for 20 years and come back to the exact same thing, or that that, um, even if there's a tree growing and there are roots, you can always cut down a tree. A woman can actually always cheat on her husband even if it doesn't seem like she might. Um, the whole project of, kind of, of doing all that work to come back in order to stop time still depends on what she does and what she wants. So I think this is a scene which shows um, both um, a moment of connection between the husband and wife, and it also shows how distant they still are and always will be because of the vast gap in the terms of their different, different accesses to power. He insists that... Um, the bed that might have been moved is my bed. And he, say, he uses the first person singular multiple times, who moved my bed? And talks about how I made it, I made it, I made it, I made it. So his definition of marriage is very much about what he's made. Whereas her definition is, is much more about her pain at the sense of abandonment by her husband. So they're very different perspectives. And yet in, that, in the final simile, after she acknowledges that she does recognize him as her husband, There's a simile which compares um, her seems seems to be comparing his experience over all these years of shipwreck, but then it flips around to become her perspective. So I think that also is a reminder of how the Odyssey has this capacity to look from more more than one point of view. We can think we're looking from one perspective, we think we're looking through the eyes of the murderer, but we can also see the victims. We think we're looking through the eyes of the husband, but we can also see the wife. So I'm just going to read that passage. She recognized the tokens he had shown her. She burst out crying and ran straight towards him and threw her arms around him, kissed his face, and said, Now you have told the story of our bed. You made my stubborn heart believe in you. This made him want to cry. He held his love, his faithful wife, and wept. As welcome as the land to swimmers, When Poseidon wrecks their ship at sea and breaks it with great waves and driving winds. A few escape the sea and reach the shore, their skin all caked with brine. Grateful to be alive, they crawl to land. So glad she was to see her own dear husband, and her white arms would not let go his neck. I'm going to stop there, and then we have our break, and then there's questions somewhere else, is what I've been told.